Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, Eric, for me, one of the strange things about these past few weeks is that time seems to pass simultaneously more slowly and more swiftly. I don't know about you, but I like there are times where I find myself surprised that it's still Wednesday. And I'm also surprised that three weeks have suddenly gone past since the last <laughs> time I was surprised it was still Wednesday. It's, it's kind of weird like that. I don't know about you, but uh, time is, well, it's almost like it's a flat circle. Um, <laughs> Wrong network, but, Karen. Wrong network. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But over a longer term, I have to say, nothing has made me feel the passage of time more than sort of marking it by the passage of uh, boxing cards. Um, and it's kind of snuck up on us. But Saturday was five years since Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao. Uh, That happened fast. Uh, Almost as much time has actually passed since the fight happened as elapsed between it first being mooted and eventually (laughs) taking place. Um, So that happened, it did. And it was quite the event. Um, I know uh, our friend Rafe Bartholomew disputes the conventional wisdom that it was a pretty crappy fight, but it it was, um, especially down the back half. But, um, But... the atmosphere and the atmosphere in the arena, I thought, on the night was a bit flat, a consequence of having Learjet owning cajillionaires <laughs> take the place of real fans. But there were lots of Learjet owning cajillionaires. Um, and in the uh, the hotel and the casino, of course, all during fight week, there were plenty of the real fans. And really that atmosphere, if the final 47 minutes of the whole thing was disappointing, the build up to it all was really, really quite something. One of the most remarkable sort of build fight build ups. Um, certainly I've ever experienced. You and I were both there during fight week, of course, uh, as you cast your mind back five years. Any memories really stick out to you? <sighs> five years ago. Yeah, man, I, I was I was in my 30s, barely. Uh, uh-huh. You were in your 40s, I believe, uh, barely. barely. <laughs> <laughs> now neither of those things is true. Um, I, your memories of the fight are surely a bit different than mine because you got a ringside seat and uh, I was in the media room watching on a TV screen. Um, but I did walk into the arena during the undercard and I walked around that backstage concourse area on the floor level that they have at MGM. Uh, I was walking about there for a few minutes waiting for someone to, to kick me out. Uh, and I did some good celebrity scoping. I, I walked right past Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Louis C.K. and Pamela Adlon. This was uh, back before Louis was canceled. Um, but uh, most of my memories are just of how huge that event was. It was unlike anything I've been to before or since. It was on this whole other level. And from a boxing perspective, I just remember it felt surreal. It was hard to believe Floyd and Manny were actually about to fight each other. We had kind of given up on it. And then like the way in, it really hit me like, oh, my God, they're standing just a couple feet from each other right now. And they'll be fighting tomorrow. Um, Of course, it was our first radio row as podcasters. So that was fun. Um, And I have a little inside baseball story that I've uh, never told publicly, uh, but I think Five years. I think the statute of limitations uh, of me being shushed on this one is up. Uh, You may recall there was a little media controversy that weekend. Uh, Two well-known mainstream TV sports journalists, Rachel Nichols and Michelle Beadle, Mm -hmm. said they didn't get credentialed for the fight. Uh, said they thought it was because they'd spoken about Floyd's domestic violence history. Uh, it was a whole controversy. Kelly Swanson countered that, no, they were credentialed, and uh, it kind of dragged out within the mainstream media sphere for a little bit there. Well, 
When I went to pick up my credential on fight day, it was with the HBO credentials, uh, not the regular media credentials. I had to go on a bit of a wild goose chase outdoors in the Vegas heat to to track it down. Finally got some security lady to come out with a pile of HBO credentials. And on the top of the pile was Michelle Beadle's credential. And intrepid journalist that I am, I took a picture of it. Uh, ah. I, I had a photo that could go very viral on social media uh, you know, back before COVID-19 when going viral was something to aspire <laughs> to. Uh, but uh, before impulsively posting it, uh, I told our guys at HBO, and they politely asked me not to post the photo <laughs> anywhere, so I didn't. But I still have it. Uh, now, was the credential created after the fact to cover up uh, for, for the gaffe? Or uh, were their credentials just not for ringside, like about 80% of the credentialed media? Right. And to them, that was the same as not getting credentialed at all? I don't know. Uh, but that's my little inside story that I'm sure almost nobody cares about. Uh, Michelle Beadle <laughs> had a credential for that fight. It had her photo on it. I saw it. I took a picture of it. And, uh, and frankly... That might be more interesting to discuss five years later than the fight itself. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, that certainly. Um, you know, I, for me, I don't know that there's any like specific element. I was looking back now thinking, is there any one particular thing about that fight week that stood out? I wasn't taking pictures of other people's credentials, certainly. I remember that. But <laughs> right. I, I, for me, it's just the whole thing. There was just so much of all of it, uh, uh, not just during fight week, but, but the buildup. I almost remember the buildup more than, than fight week itself. Um, I mean, I did during fight week, I did get to co-host the stream of the final press conference of Brian Custer. Hmm. Um, But I think I remember uh, that I was just getting ready to go to Monaco for the Gennady Golovkin, Martin Murray fight when the word came down that this fight was going to happen and that it was basically it was all done. And and I think you and I just we both, I think, prepared stuff in advance and it was all going to be announced when Floyd decided it was going to be announced. Right. I remember us just sitting around just waiting. The, <laughs> whenever the whim struck Floyd was what it was going to be. And, and there weren't a lot of media in, in Monaco, not a lot of U.S. media, but there were some and a few, you know, asked, oh, is it going to happen? And I remember I thought I was hilarious by pulling the Marshall and Lynch act every time somebody asked me that question. I just said, I'm just here so I don't get fined. And I laughed and I laughed and I laughed. Um, yeah, and, and, then, and then just suddenly, you know, Floyd just decided to, to go ahead and announce it. And yeah, and I guess the things that I remember the most were, were, were the build-up, doing the official announcement. Uh, presser mm-hmm. co-hosting that with Brian and the live streams we did uh, Mauro Ronaldo and I co-hosted live streams from Wildcard and from Mayweather's gyms and I remember Mayweather's gym because Floyd took a while to show up and so we were vamping and trying to fill time and I just, just I guess this is my outstanding memory of, of Mayweather Pacquiao make of it what you will um, we're vamping there and Chris de Blasio comes up and hands me a little or shows me uh, he scribbled down a name on his on his notepad and he shows it to me and it's little Kim oh, right now I remember this yep I remember looking at it and going like the actual little Kim like we're gonna talk to little Kim and he goes yeah and and we turn around and there is little Kim not looking anything like I remembered her because <laughs> she didn't look anything like I remembered her right um and I had no idea what to say to little Kim fortunately Mara knew all about her stuff and her yeah. music he was able to drop all these various and references and whatnot and I was just like so do you like boxing <laughs> um, did you like Floyd? <laughs> uh, that was that was the extent of my invest my interrogation. But she was very sweet and very nice. So yeah, there you go. Your your memory of Mayweather Pacquiao is 
Michelle Beadle and mine is Little Kim. <laughs> it's interesting, though, just to think back on it now at the, you know, the HBO Showtime crossover of it all and that, you mm. know, the, 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 the streams were crossing and people were uh, maybe not necessarily getting along across the board, yeah. but working together to, to make things happen. And, and there I, was tension. Lordy, lordy, there was tension. <laughs> yes, there was. Um, but I, I one of the things that stands out about toward the end of Fight Week was uh, our people at HBO whispers going around of the number of... Of buys this thing was That's tracking right. toward and so i wonder if showtime people were having the exact same conversations i kind of assume so but like i think it ended up doing 4.6 million was the final number but there were it was like early in fight week oh it's it's gonna cross three million and then and then as we were getting close to the fight this could do six to eight million right you know you were hearing all these crazy numbers um yeah. But uh, but yeah, so we we here on the Showtime uh, podcast spent the month of April uh, looking back on all, all these big Cinco de Mayo weekend fights, and uh, that was certainly the biggest. You know, the Cor- Corrales Castillo was the best fight. Uh, yeah. Revenge of the rematches was the best card. Floyd versus Oscar was maybe the most influential event. But uh, but Maypack, yeah, it it does not get any bigger. It, it was immense and very strange at times as well. The other thing I remember was by by the end of fight week, I was. I was very tired and grumpy and we were going to, I think you were with us going to the cosmopolitan to see a Friday night fight. Yeah. And, and Jim Marsh of HBO insisted on leading us all a particular route, which I knew wasn't the right route. And (laughs) I was very, very pissy by the time we got ringside. And then when he started to lead people the wrong way on the way to dinner afterwards, I'm like, that's it. I'm going home. (laughs) Right. People might be surprised that the memories we hold of these big ringside events are silly, petty little ones, but there you go. Yeah, we've uh, we, we really did not mention a single punch Floyd or, or Manny threw. Uh, we, all of our random memories that have very little to do with the fight itself. Indeed. All right, well, that's enough looking back. Let's look forward a little bit. Uh, coming up on the podcast this week, we are going not just to Las Vegas. We're making a virtual visit to Aotearoa. That's New Zealand to all you Pakeha out there uh, to speak with heavyweight contender and video creator extraordinaire Joseph Parker. Uh, We will be looking at this Friday's batch of Showtime Boxing Classics as Keith Thurman takes on Sean Porter and Danny Garcia. But before we talk about the boxing classics we'll all be watching this week, let's talk about the other things we did watch last week. Uh, Eric, you first. What you been watching? A veritable smorgasbord of two-dimensional entertainment, my friend. Uh, (laughs) um, In terms of uh, quote-unquote live TV, I watched the Parks and Rec reunion special, uh, which was fine for what it was. It gave me a few good laughs, uh, most of them purred happily related, uh, and and a few warm fuzzies as well. It was just uh, it was just good to see my friends again. Uh, I don't know if uh, before I mention anything else, if uh, obviously you watched it too. Any uh, any. Thing to comment on, or or were you saving that for your uh, your watch a watch? No, no, I'll add, I I thought exactly. It was kind of funny. I saw a couple of reviews that said, "Well, it was nice, but the plot was a bit thin." But I'm like, "Well, of course the plot was thin. <laughs> right. What could it's they like do?" It's like twelve yeah. actors doing a doing a Zoom <laughs> thing, and I, I thought they I, I quite liked the way that they came up with uh, excuses for for um, you know why Anne and Chris couldn't be in the same room, but why Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally were. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> but yeah, warm and fuzzies, warm and fuzzies, definitely, and. I agree with you. The the Perd Hatley Chiron, Leslie Nope, is who is talking now. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of TV binging, uh, are you familiar with the Netflix show Fauda? I am not at all, no. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised. Um, most most non-Jews are not. Uh, it's I've only heard about this show from my fellow Jews. Uh, it's it's an Israeli show uh, about uh, terrorists versus an anti-terrorist outfit. 
it's very much in the same genre as Homeland. Uh, and the, the third season just dropped on Netflix a couple of weeks ago. And uh, this is a show my wife and I watched together. Uh, last summer, it was one of our shared binges while our kids were away at camp. Uh, so we're, uh, we're three episodes into the new season. Good show. Not an all-time fave, but definitely a good mm. show. Um, and then two old movies that I watched with my son this week. First, Ghost. It's, it's corny in many ways. But I don't care. I love it. It's just a great movie. Uh, I, I think it's gotten a bit underrated. Nobody seems to talk about it. But uh, but Ghost uh, is, is a great movie. has a little bit of everything. Um, and the other one we watched, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Um, <laughs> that was with... doing the rounds a bit. Did you see it on cable or did you order it up? Because I noticed that there was some cable network seemed to have it. on. The... Yeah, I said I set it to DVR. I just kind of checked the schedule for it. This That's kind of been my method is a movie pops into my mind. Oh, we might like this. So then I see is mm. it coming on anytime the next two weeks and I set it to record. So yeah, it was definitely with commercials and edited for TV wherever I found it. Um, and it holds up about like I thought it would. If you hate Jim Carrey doing Jim Carrey <laughs> things and you hated the movie then, you'll still hate it now. If you enjoy him, then it pretty much holds up. Needless to say, my son was a huge fan of when Jim Carrey's butt is talking to Tone Loke. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Got some major laughs. Um, so that's what I've been watching. How about you? Um well, I, I've just started a, a new show uh, on Amazon Prime, actually, which briefly features um, the unpersoned character or the unpersoned actor from Parks and Rec, actually, Paul Schneider, who was, you know, Mark Brandanowitz in season one and two oh, and then vanished. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Never to be spoken of again. Right. Um, he makes his brief appearance in the first episode of a show uh, on Amazon Prime called Tales from the Loop. Have you heard about this at all? I have not heard of it, no. Very cool. Very interesting. If you like languidly paced science fiction, um, this could very, very well be for you. It's set in a town. It's set in the fictional town of, I assume, of Mercer, Ohio, um, uh, buried beneath which is this major center for experimental physics, which the locals call the loop. And all kinds of weird things are going on down there underground, which are affecting life above ground. And so... Generally, it's about just people living their lives above ground, but everything's a little bit off. Mm. Uh, very and strange little events will happen. And it's funny, I was looking at it going, this has the air of like one of those, like the original The Killing, you know, the, the, Nor the sort of has this Nordic crime procedural feel about it. And apparently it is, in fact, this show is actually based on a series of paintings by a Swedish artist mm. who, who just painted this sort of fictional world with this, with this crazy experimental physics place going on underneath. And they've turned it into this really interesting and moody show. I've only seen the first episode so far, but very interested in seeing some more. Mm. Um, and then uh, you mentioned Tangentially Homeland. There was the series finale of Homeland. I stuck with it for all eight seasons. Um, like I think most people, loved the first season. Didn't care too much for season two. I personally thought it rebounded a bit in season three. Four and five were okay. Six and seven were absolute hate watches. <laughs> like, like, I'm stuck with this. I'm committed with this. I'm going to make it to the end. And I thought it bounced back a bit in, in season eight. The finale was strong because whatever else you think about Homeland, Claire Danes and Mandy Patinkin are terrific actors. Um, but, you know, I made it to the end. I mean, fundamentally, the problem with Homeland, and this is my guy who stuck with all of it, um, is 
the central protagonist, isn't it? I mean, whatever you think about intelligence services, Carrie Matheson would not get within a sniff of working <laughs> for any of them. Her first psychoval would have seen her escorted off the properties. And she certainly wouldn't get a second and third and fourth and fifth chance. But so there was that major suspension of of disbelief to be dealt with but i did think it rebounded reasonably well and i did quite like the finale and now i don't have to hate watch it anymore <laughs> there you go and yeah that's that's what i heard about the finale was that people who who did stick with it uh seemed to unanimously agree that the finale was very satisfying and well yeah. done so yeah not yet done however is Monzone on Netflix. Well, I guess technically it is done. Drop, <laughs> right. drop all 13 episodes. But our viewing of it is not done. Um, we are now through episode eight, I think, Yep. Uh, of 13. Uh, your thoughts on the most recent episodes? Uh, my opinion hasn't changed. You know, still good, not great. Still feeling like 13 episodes is maybe a couple more than we needed. Um, I'm glad we're doing this after episode eight, not episode seven, because I would have said some very incorrect stuff under the assumption that they killed Gustavo the lawyer at the end of episode seven. Oh. <laughs> uh, turns out he just got beaten up and he was basically fine, as we learned at the start of episode eight. Um, but I have my usual list of, of thoughts and observations. Do you want to give your quick overall opinion? before I start hitting my bullet points. Uh, you, 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 you go right ahead. I'll, uh, I'll, I shall retort, sir. Okay, fine. Uh, so I complained last time about the autopsy scene. In episode six, we got a much grosser autopsy scene <laughs> with a rotted corpse. So thanks for that, Monzone producers. Um, it was good to see uh, an appearance from Victor Galindez. Um, I assume that that's kind of a cameo and not a recurring role, but uh, good to see a moment of, oh, hey, that's supposed to be Victor Galindez. Those, those little moments are fun. I was amused by the bellboy in the threesome scene. Uh, yeah. There was some solid humor there in a show that's otherwise not too heavy on humor, I would say. Um, I like the conversation between Monzone and Lector about retiring in his prime. And, yeah. Yeah, that was that was that stood out to you as well. Yeah, it's it's yeah. A, a thought every boxer has, but very few follow through on. And, and I just thought that material was well written. Um, when, uh, when Gustavo got beaten up, uh, as I referenced earlier, um, one of the reasons that I, I assumed he was dead is they did the old oranges falling to the ground symbolism, which, uh, <laughs> is supposed to mean death, uh, as, as far as my, uh, studies of the Godfather, uh, go. So, um, uh, yeah, so they threw me off there with a, a little, uh, little fake out symbolism, I guess. Um, here's a question. Is it just me or do Gustavo's wife and his mistress look like the same person? Yes, I was. Yes, he does. <laughs> I was a little confused uh, for a moment there. Like, wait, is that is that that is someone different? That's not his wife, right? Okay, yeah. Um, I was not expecting when we started this binge that there would be a full-on porno scene in here, uh, but uh, yeah. they they did go boogie nights on us. Uh, that was unexpected, and I have no idea if that's true to life or not. That no. Monzone and Susanna Jimenez actually had sex on the set of the movie. I have no no idea about that. Um, and last thing, the, uh, you'll recall that I said last week. Uh, I just finished the Black Crows book, Hard to Handle. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite part of these two episodes was the montage of Monzone title defenses set to the Otis Redding, Hard to Handle. Uh, um, and maybe that's not a great sign for the show if my favorite thing is seeing the real Monzone in old fight clips over either of the actors playing Monzone, but, uh, but here we are. Yes. Um, I, I think the thing that struck me the most 
from these episodes is that apparently Argentine prisons in 1988 were pretty chill. <laughs> right. Um, yes, that's a good <laughs> at point. At least when it comes to visiting time. You know, visitors yeah. can bring in their kids. Inmates can ask the guards to bring out other inmates to play cards with the kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, inmates can pick up sleeping kids and walk them to the door. I, I mean, I don't know. Or maybe inmates generally couldn't do that, but Carlos Monzon could. Uh, might be an element of that as well. Sure. But, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> there was a tiny little bit I thought, again, uh, but not very important, um, playing slightly fast and loose with some of the details of Monzone's career. I, I, I don't know this, but I thought that he had been stripped by an alphabet body for not defending against Rodrigo Valdez rather than not providing a urine sample. But uh, the most important thing is that the alphabet body was made to look stupid. <laughs> and that, right. the, that was the important thing. Uh, but I, apparently, supposedly, at least... You know whether it's whether it's true or or not. There is the uh, the story out there that he did actually provide a glass of champagne instead of a instead of a urine sample for for that fight. Um, so, uh, but yeah. Um, the other thing is this sort of follows up on something you said last week. Boy, he just the monsoon just becomes less and less agreeable. <laughs> yes, I mean he starts from like a, a a not great place, but Lord have mercy, he is just becoming. Now we're explicitly seeing him beat women, and and it's just all round drunken, womanizing, woman beating assholeness is just wow. It's really hard to have sympathy for a lot of the characters here. Actually, um, kind of like Gustavo, although he is having an affair on the side. Right. Actually, Monzon's lawyers, and especially Patricia, are the ones who sort of come across as perhaps some of the more honorable people. Yeah. Um, I don't know what's going on with the hobo and the truth about that. I, <laughs> right. I, it's sort of become more of a – there wasn't very much of his boxing. Like you said, it's that sort of montage. It's sort of become more of like a true-life detective show, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But I do suspect by the end you'll be proven right and will think that would have been better with 10 episodes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, the balance is has shifted, as you say, a little more toward the detective element of it. And uh, it, it seems – I feel like the earlier episodes had a little more younger Monzone, and, and that has sort of flipped. But just in terms of how unlikable Monzone is – the young Monzone has gone fully, wow, that yes. guy is just a creepy yeah. asshole. Whereas the the older Monzone, stuck in jail, you know, connecting with uh, with the lawyer's son a little bit. Uh, yeah, he's 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 softening maybe a little bit. I can almost root for the older Monzone who has uh, who has probably murdered somebody uh, more than I can the younger Monzone at this point. Oh, oh. All right, that's enough talk for one week about the fictionalized portrayal of a 1970s boxing superstar. <laughs> uh, let's turn our attention to. One of the brighter lights of early 21st century boxing, uh, Keith One-Time Thurman. Uh, this Friday, Showtime's sequence of weekly boxing classic doubleheaders uh, continues with Thurman's close 2016 win over Sean Porter. And it's even closer 2017 win over Danny Garcia. Um, and Eric, I know you've heard this story from me before. I might have told it on a previous podcast, um, but I shall never forget the first time that I met Keith Thurman. Um, I actually hadn't heard of him before he was picked. It's the co-main event against Orlando Laura in Cincinnati on an HBO show that had Adrian Bronner against Vicente Escobedo as the main event. Um, uh, this was before Bronner had broken out to be a big star, um, but I was assigned to kind of follow him around and do a piece about him because we thought he was going to break out to be a big star. And in hindsight, he showed us his true nature, Adrian Bronner, when he just blew past the 130-pound weight limit. And then instead of trying to lose the weight, just 
laughed and went to a restaurant that was right by the weigh-in stage and started eating. And then he blew through the um, the Saturday morning reway. And so all afternoon, as Escobedo's folks, you know, went back and forth, uh, it looked as if maybe the main event wouldn't happen. And Keith Thurman, then unknown, hoping for his big break, uh, the choice of him for an HBO broadcast had been excoriated by some by some boxing writers and i remember sitting there in the lobby of the hotel and thurman was sitting there nervously at first he was nervous then he got excited because he thought hey maybe this fight won't happen and i'll be a main event and then he got nervous again when he realized that if the main event didn't happen it would be canceled the whole card would be canceled right um in the event card went ahead Thurman knocked out Laura, and then, in what was effectively his introduction to the boxing world, in his first ever televised in-ring post-fight interview, he called out Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> and boy, were there boos. Yeah. <laughs> and, and later that night, uh, Ed Mulholland and I were looking for a place to drink, and we found this one place that was open, this piano bar in downtown Cincinnati. And we stood at the bar, and I turned to my left, and there with a friend was Keith Thurman. And I go, hello. <laughs> and uh, and his friend said, hey, what did you think about him calling out Floyd? Hey, what kind of odds do you think you'd give, you know, for, for, for Keith if you were to get in the, the ring with Floyd? And I'm normally a pretty diplomatic fellow. But perhaps because of the libations, I wasn't at this moment. And I blurted out something like, 4,000 to 1. Um, <laughs> and he looked genuinely shocked, actually, that, um, that I would say such a thing. But anyway, all of which is a very long-winded way of saying, look, I, I don't think I'd give Thurman very good odds of beating Mayweather now, even with Mayweather out of the ring for a few years. But, um, you know, he has, at least in the interim, shown that he probably deserved to be on that HBO card. And he's become a main eventer and a, and a really solid fighter who's maybe not quite risen to the very top of his division, but certainly very close. Um, all of which, and please forgive me for the setup, but all of which is a very long-winded way of asking you this. Um, eight years after that fight, how would you assess his career to this point? How well do you think he has done? How, how wrong do you think he has proven those doubters? Has his career been a disappointment? Has it been better than you might expect it? Has it been about what you expected? What, what do you, what's your general assessment of Keith Thurman at this point? Well, it's relative to expectations is an interesting one just because my expectations have fluctuated a bit with mm. him. Um, I didn't think much of him after the Laura fight, and I recall Max Kellerman selling a little too hard on what a unique personality Thurman was. Mm. Uh, that, that was what he was really hammering on that broadcast, and I wasn't seeing it. Um, the Diego Chavez fight was the one that convinced me this guy was really good, was, was championship caliber. But then he hit a stretch of, of fighting a bunch of semi-washed guys and, and no-hopers and, and not really proving anything more until the Sean Porter fight in 2016. But since then, other than losing time to, to injury, Thurman really hasn't wasted time when he's got in the ring, you know, fighting Porter, Garcia, Pacquiao, the three of them in a span of four fights and going two and one, all three fights close enough to make a case for, for either guy to win. So he's had a very good career. He never quite cracked my pound for pound top 10, but I know he did for a lot of other people. Thurman is not an all-time great fighter, but he's been an important fighter for a good long while now. A guy who provides entertainment pretty consistently, who can compete at the elite level. He's certainly done more than I would have guessed after seeing him on TV for that first time. Mm. Mm. Uh, 
Now, let's assume that a boxing fan had not seen Thurman on that day in Cincinnati where you watched him beat Orlando Laura and then you told him to his face that he stinks in in not so many words. Um, (laughs) Let's assume that a fan is a newbie and has missed Thurman's career, uh, but wants to catch up a bit, wants to learn about him and asks you which, let's say, which three fights of his he should watch. What what fights of the Thurman catalog would you say are the three defining matchups so far? So the easy answer here would be to pick the two that we're going to see on Friday and then Manny Pacquiao. Mm-hmm. And if we weren't showing those two fights on Friday, those would be the ones that I would pick. But because we are, and it seems just really a bit of a cop-out to say, well, oh, the one's on Friday. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll find some other ones. Um, you're, you're, you're not shilling for the fights that, that our Showtime is replaying. You're doing the anti-shill move. I respect that. Well, because we are going to talk about them anyway. And right. So it's like, well, you know, why why just use up another question to talk about this? Let's, let's, let's broaden this out a bit. I felt it would be a bit lazy. And while I have no problem with being lazy, I try to hide the fact. <laughs> so um, so I'm, I'm actually going to pick a sequence of three fights back to back to back that um, I infer from what you said were not particularly impressive to you except for one but the reason that i'm picking them is that i feel that they sort of encapsulate in many ways both the way in which keith thurman got some people very excited and the way in which some people would look at keith thurman and look at his flaws and some of the flaws that have remained but also some of the excitement that has been as you mentioned sort of an important part of keith thurman's career so first of all july 2013 you already mentioned this uh he took on fellow unbeaten tough guy diego chavez and he was in a real fight that was a tough tough fight um but i thought you know if you look at the positive elements of this what was notable I mean, was that he showed in this fight that he could adapt. Um, he started off quite happily brawling, realized a short way into it that he wasn't necessarily getting the better of that kind of fight, um, slowed, it, slowed it down a bit, uh, for to try to fight a bit more from middle distance, um, then decking Chavez with a body shot in the ninth and finishing him in the 10th in the before. And this is another part also that's a very, very important part of the Keith Thurman mythology, thanking the city of San Diego. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Even though the fight was in San Antonio, that was that was that was an important part of the Thurman. Experience. I forgot that that was that fight. Okay, <laughs> um, and then uh, five months later, he again fought as a Adrian Bronner co-main. Uh, this time, uh, everybody's favorite Adrian Bronner fight when he got beaten up by Marcus Maidana, and in the co-main, he took on Jesus Soto Carras, um, who was still a tough out. Uh, at that stage, I think, you know, uh, still not necessarily a top level guy was was a very good measuring stick. I felt at that point, like if you could get past Soto Karras comfortably, you were probably pretty good. And, and he and he did. He took a booming right hand, uh, I think, quite early on, but was able to come back and stop him. And then after that, he absolutely leathered Julio Diaz. Knocked him down in the second, opened up a cut in the third, and then actually forced Julio Diaz, who, who was generally pretty tough, to quit um, because his rib hurt after a Thurman body shot. And so, from but in the interim, in between that, Diaz came back and actually shook him a little bit. And so, the thing is for me, the reason that I picked those three is that they show some of his strengths: the fact that he could adapt, the fact that he had power, that he actually had a really good body shots. Um, and he had weaknesses. He could let guys back in. His defense wasn't always the best, and it still isn't always the best. And I think it was those flaws as much as his strengths that made him such an exciting and popular fighter at his peak. Yeah, I, I, I can see why you would uh, why you would pick those. My issue with uh, the second and the third fights is mostly that 
he was going he was getting progressively easier opposition wise mm-hmm. after that Chavez was a really tough fight Soto Carras you're right decent measuring stick but uh not as dangerous as Chavez and then Diaz I think even easier than that at that stage of his career so I don't know that he was progressing but I think you're right that those fights do all all show a little something about uh, about what makes Keith Thurman Keith Thurman yeah, indeed. But moving on to... See, I'm not ignoring the fights on Friday. Far from it. We'll give them their own little, special little segment here. So let's move on to those, um, which were, and I agree with you, surely the, the two best wins of, of his career. The first against Sean Porter saw Thurman emerge with a close but unanimous win. What were the keys to his victory that night? And when fans are sitting down to watch it for the first time, what should they look out for? So the biggest key to victory for Thurman was that he throws these wide, eye-catching punches. Yeah. And when they land, you know, they appear to have force, and often they do, but there's just there's nothing subtle about them. You can't miss them, and I think that helps him win close decisions. It certainly helped him in this fight. Might have been the difference, in fact. There were a few rounds where Porter built a lead, and then Keith would hurt him just a bit, uh, and, and that yep. would steal the round for him. Um, and as for what to look for, I'd say what jumps out at me is to just sit back and enjoy and be entertained, because this was an excellent fight with a couple of round of the year candidates i remember specifically going in that i wasn't optimistic about the way these two styles would mesh i I thought there would be a lot of holding and mauling Mm. and headbutting and there was almost none of that both guys fought well fought really well uh, on a big stage on showtime championship boxing on cbs big audience just a couple of weeks after Muhammad Ali died, there were a lot of eyeballs, and Thurman and Porter delivered. They showed skill and, and big cojones, and uh, and then the judges all managed to not screw it up, which is a rarity. <laughs> um, it was close, but uh, but the right guy got the decision. Um, and as you remarked earlier, uh, his win against Danny Garcia was even tighter, a split decision with uh, two cards, 115-113 either way, the third one having Thurman up, 116-112. What were the highlights of that contest that viewers should look for on the replay? Well, it's interesting. It's it's in the same way that I said those other three fights that I mentioned sort of highlight the strengths and the weaknesses of, of Thurman. This one fight does as well in so many ways. It's And, and it, it goes back to that point that you made early talking about this fight with Porter, that there are times when Keith Thurman can box well and he looks like a solid and classy boxer puncher. And then there are times, perhaps more often, when he doesn't. And he just goes in and he brawls. And it's so, he looks so sloppy when he's doing it at times. And yet, exactly as you said, uh, my thought as I was looking at this was sometimes then it can be really effective. He throws so many of them uh, so wide and, and, and sometimes some unexpected angles that yeah, three might miss or barely hit at all. And then one, then the fourth will hit and hurt his opponent really well. And that happened quite a few times. I was also impressed that even in the midst of all of that, he can change up his offense pretty well. He can show some real variety. It wasn't until rewatching this that I actually fully appreciated that Thurman, actually has a pretty darn good left hook. Um, you know, and in this fight, you'd think that Garcia would be the one who would show the left hook most cl- most clearly. That's one of the punches for which he's most renowned, and indeed for the body for his body punching. And indeed he did, but Thurman did that pretty well as well. And and again, to sort of get back to that point you made about the effectiveness of Thurman with this, this style and close decisions, I was thinking about this because Garcia throughout, throughout a, despite it being a very fast-paced and intense and tough fight, 
he's I, I like watching Danny Garcia fight. He um he always looks pretty composed. He rarely yeah. looks stressed, right? He's you know, he's he's always compact, he's 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 always in the position he wants to be in. But then you look at his two very, very close losses to Thurman and to Sean Porter, and you kind of think that perhaps sometimes that works against him because maybe judges do see a guy who's flinging themselves at him, uh, throwing all kinds of punches, and maybe that causes him to a judge to sneak that occasional round. Those are the two fights that he slightly lost that he could very easily have won. Yeah. You almost wonder if his calmness in the ring, Danny Garcia, can sometimes work against him when he's up against that particular foe. Um, Garcia coming back very strong at the end, by the way, to, to really tighten this up. Also, special bonus mention to Jimmy Lennon Jr., who did an amazing job of stringing out the suspense in his <laughs> announcement. So much so that you could see that Danny Garcia was trying to put it together and goes, oh my God, he's going to announce me as the winner. And he starts to celebrate until suddenly Jimmy announces Keith Thurman. Um, very good fight. I mean, a really good quality action fight. But it's those contrasts in styles that really stood out to me and, and, and how on this one instance, Danny Garcia's strength may have been his weakness in this fight. Yeah, the thing about the de the decision uh, is that part of the reason that uh, Garcia got confused is those stupid alphabet belts. That yeah. I feel like it was one of those yeah. things where, you know, and now the unified something something. And so between all of that, it was what made Danny Garcia yeah. think, oh, I'm the end now guy. But uh, but yeah, it's it's always kind of amusing when the uh, you're right. The, the, the way Jimmy Lennon delivered it was did string it out perfectly. Perfectly, but it also uh, illustrates how the more belts there are and the more no one yes. can remember which guy was the <laughs> champion coming in uh, so that and the new doesn't always mean something if we can't remember which one was trying to win the title. So little of that. Yeah. Um, so uh, one theme here is how close these two bouts were. And mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of these fights between the, these these guys uh, well away over the last several years have been close. Uh so Thurman won close against Porter and Garcia, but lost close to Manny Pacquiao. Uh, Garcia lost close to Thurman and to Porter, won close over Lamont Peterson. Uh, Porter lost close to Thurman, won close over Garcia, and lost close-ish to Gelbrook and Errol Spence. So how evenly matched has, has this crop of welterweights been, and, and how highly would you rank this, for want of a better, you know, Spence, Crawford, Thurman, Garcia, Porter, Brook generation of welterweights? Yeah, it's a very solid welterweight generation. And doesn't it seem like welterweight is always solid? Mm. I mean, it, it's been a long time since the 147-pound division stunk. Um, in terms of how evenly matched they are, it might be that Crawford and or Spence are a little separated from the yeah. rest, although Spence didn't prove that to be the case against Porter. That was a, a damn close fight. He won, but he didn't separate himself by much. But... Uh, it's remarkable how closely matched the rest of these guys are. Uh, you know, Thurman, Garcia, Porter, Brooke, 40 year old Pacquiao. Uh, I have no idea how to rank those guys on a given yeah. day. Um, it's been a very fun welterweight era. It's no four Kings. Nothing is right. Uh, although as a welterweight era, you have to remove any Hagler fights from that era's legacy. Uh, but still, uh, th this ain't the early eighties and it's not quite as strong at the top as the era of Oscar, Trinidad, Mosley, Corte, Whitaker. Um, the Floyd and Manny era is a weird one in that you had the two biggest superstars in the sport. Their individual fights weren't always so competitive, although sometimes they were. But this one right now, this will go down 
as a very strong welterweight generation, even if it's not going to produce as many Hall of Famers as the yeah. Four Kings or the Oscar generation. Um, and I include Thurman as probably not a Hall of Famer, although he might have time to change that. Uh, we began this segment with you asking me about his career to this point. For all his success, uh, over the last couple of years, he's clearly been interrupted and diminished by injury. How much more of him do you think we are likely to see in, in the ring? And when he does hang them up, how will he be remembered? Yeah, I don't know how much more we'll see from him. I don't know that we'll see that much. I'm speaking from, this is from ignorance and supposition here. I, I have no great inside <laughs> knowledge. Well, but those are your I, specialties, I, really. Uh, precisely. Um, those are my middle names, even. Um <laughs> But, you know, as you mentioned, he's had several injury interruptions now. And, 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 you know, a fighter can have, like, one injury interruption and, you know, recover. And when you have a couple back-to-back, come back, have a couple fights, and then have another one, um, even before the whole sport shut down, he'd announced that he was basically going to sit out until 2021 to let right. some injuries heal. Um, I, I don't know that you... St- Stop having those issues, especially when I think by, by 2021, I think it'll be 32. Um, and his style of fighting is probably pretty taxing on the body right. that, you know, that we talked about. Um, so I don't know. I, I, it feels to me, and I, I also don't know who he might fight at this point who realistically might enhance his record or reputation or, or legacy. I mean, he's already beaten Porter and Garcia. He, he did very well against an old Pacquiao, but not well enough. Um, we don't know what Errol Spence has in the tank after his car accident. Um, and, you know, based on what our conversation with Derek James uh, last week, uh, it's going to take a little while to find that out. It sounds like he's going to ease him back in. But you would still, nonetheless, probably make Spence a pretty decent favorite against this version of, of Keith Thurman. Uh, likewise, I think Terence Crawford, I would make a, a favorite over him. So, so I don't know what else he would, what's left for him, or how he might easily sort of add to his legacy. Uh, I, and I, I guess the way in which we assess, assess him in the future depends a lot on whether people agree with your assessment there of the welterweight division as a whole, isn't it? I mean. If in times to come we look back on it and think, oh, this welterweight division wasn't quite as good as we thought it was, then he'll be sort of downgraded. But right. um, but it is a very good – I think he's been a very good fighter in a very good division, but not a great fighter in a non-great welterweight <laughs> division, if you know. I think – I sort of feel like in terms of his legacy, he might be viewed as more – Vernon Forrest than Shane Mosley, if you know what I mean. Like an exceptionally good fighter, but not not necessarily an automatic Hall of Famer. Not yeah. necessarily the kind of guy. You know, the way I think about it, if, if say a boxing fan were being born this week, or more likely, given the present situation, probably about eight months from now, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, you know, then by the time they're 20 or 25, Keith Thurman, I suspect, is not the kind of name that a 25-year-old boxer in the year 2045 is going to know off the top of their head, but their 45 year old dad or mom is going to say, you know what, you know, as a good fighter, when I was your age, Keith Thurman, you should look up some of his videos. He was a really good fighter. That's kind of how I imagine that like, his legacy is going to be, yeah. which is not a bad legacy to have. No, not at all. That's that's a really good assessment, and I think Forrest is a pretty good comparison for where he's going to rank among the all-time welterweights when it's all said and done. Uh, all right, we have a few news items to touch on this week. Let's start with a quick flurry of unrelated items that 
don't really go together in any particular way, but it's our <laughs> podcast, so we'll do what we want. Yeah. Uh, first, uh, former heavyweight titleist Deontay Wilder appears to still be on a search for scapegoats for his loss to Tyson Fury, stating on a recent PBC podcast that, quote, I am getting rid of all the snakes in the grass. This time has allowed me to dig into the brush and see what was going on. We're going to form an excellent team with great people once everything is back to normal, end quote. Uh, Meanwhile, former middleweight titleist Felix Sturm of Germany has been sentenced to three years in jail for tax evasion, having apparently tried to hide money in a Swiss bank account. And speaking of boxers who have an acquaintance with law enforcement, he says, attempting to loosely connect a couple of these unrelated (laughs) items, uh, Adrian Broner posted a decidedly Broner-esque message on social media in which he claimed he'd need $10 million to return to the ring. The punchlines pretty much write themselves. Uh, Kieran, anything to say about any of these items? Yeah, on reflection, I feel like we should apologize to Deontay Wilder. The guy's just trying to get his house in order and he's looking to, you know, you know, put himself in the best possible position to take his career to the next level. And we've dumped him in with a couple of real rapscallions there. So sorry about that. Right. Um, at least we will be seeing Deontay Wilder in the ring again uh, when all of this uh, is, is when we're allowed to resume boxing, um, which is apparently more than we can say for Felix Durham. Or indeed, judging by his financial demands, Adrian Bronner. <laughs> right. Um, so talking of when boxing is going to return, the effort to figure out when and where that might be uh, continues. Uh, the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, has said that large gatherings such as sporting events may be banned in the city until 2021. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom has not set a date, but unsurprisingly said this last week that sporting events with crowds are very much stage four of a four-stage process of reopening the state. Uh, sporting events without crowds are at stage three. Um, the British Boxing Board of Control has announced that it hopes that fights can return behind closed doors in July, but that it will limit the number of fights per card to five. And top ranks Bob Arum has said he hopes to start staging fights again in June, again without fans, uh, and hopes to be rolling out two to three cards per week. Uh, Eric, two questions. First of all, does that picture look any less murky to you than it has in the recent past? And secondly, uh, you asked me last week whether I take the over or under on June 15th as a return for cards of moderate significance. Uh, I took the over and you then put the question to the Twitterati. So what did the Twitterati respond? Yeah, the Twitterati is in lockstep with you, Kieran. Uh, and I have to admit, as soon as I posted it, you know, before anyone even started responding, I was pretty confident I didn't have the right date if I was mm-hmm. looking for 50-50 balance. I think if I'd said July 1st, yeah. it, w- it would have been close to 50-50. But yeah. instead, for June 15th, uh, and in the tweet I specified, mid-level televised card that takes yep. place in the U.S., 78.1% said later than June 15th, 21.9% said earlier. Fairly unsurprising results there. Like I said, the, the best line is probably something like July 1st. Um, mm-hmm. But as far as whether... The picture is any less murky. Nah, it's it's about as murky as ever. Uh, I stand by my feeling that everyone will be watching to see how the UFC card this Saturday yeah. goes uh, and giving it a few weeks to see what the reaction is like and whether any news breaks of anyone testing positive after the fact. And if it goes off fairly successfully, I would think a boxing promoter and network will get to work on doing something similar. I do think top rank in ESPN doing something in June at an empty arena or a studio setting is possible. Mm. I'm glad to hear in various countries, various people are trying to make a plan and come up with some rules, the the five fights per card rules, things like that. That's a good thing. And I think with proper testing, 
if you're doing it without audiences, as long as you're not in a hot spot and thus ambulances are available to have at the right. fights, I think boxing is a sport you can do safely or, you know, no less safely than you typically do the dangerous right. sport of boxing. <laughs> um, and the Association of Ringside Physicians did make a statement over the weekend that significantly softened their stance. They went from basically we should not be having combat sports to with proper precautions, maybe combat sports can be okay. Um, so I, I believe boxing will be back before baseball, basketball, or hockey, but nobody really knows anything. Yeah. The, the UFC card is when we'll start to get some clarity, I believe. Yeah. Uh, okay, last news item to hit, Madison Square Garden and a number of the boxers who have fought there and promoters who have put on fights. Uh, they're teamed up for a video message thanking the real heroes putting themselves at risk every day to save lives and encouraging fans to continue practicing safety measures. It's quite the list of participants. Layla Ali, Michael Buffer, Mick Conlon, Jerry Cooney, Miguel Cotto, Oscar De La Hoya, Lou DiBella, Todd DeBuff, Gennady Golovkin, Heather Hardy, Eddie Hearn, Jamel Herring, Bernard Hopkins, Vladimir Klitschko, Andy Lee, Tom Loeffler, Teofimo Lopez, Michaela Mayer, Amanda Serrano, and Katie Taylor. So, uh, yeah, a pretty great cast list for a worthy cause. Uh, I'm sure you'd agree, Karen. Indeed, yeah, some real uh, folks who have some real strong association with the garden. Good to see our buddy Andy Lee in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, Miguel. Ah, oh, Miguel. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, while we are on the subject of videos, if you spend any time at all on social media, you have almost certainly come across the videos that have been posted by uh, this week's guest. Uh, the first one that he did was great. And if he'd stopped there, everyone would have been happy. But he kept going, and I swear, each one is better than the last. And joining us now to talk about them, about boxing in general and life under lockdown, all the way from the land of the long white cloud, Heavyweight contender, Joseph Parker. Joseph, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me and a very good morning from New Zealand. So we like to ask our guests these days at the start of everything, how they're doing with lockdown. Hope that everybody is well. Uh, based on your videos, you seem to be doing quite well. But I hope that that is true, that you and your family are all doing okay and well. And, and I wonder if you could give us a quick sense of, of, of how things are in New Zealand right now. Yeah, um... You know, uh, the main thing is that everyone, well, my, my family is good, you know, safe and, and healthy and well. And, um, well, I've been spending a lot of time with my family since the lockdown. Mm. Um, and even though New Zealand's down to level three, we're at, we were at level four. We've moved down to level three and it's, it's, they're still asking us to stay indoors and, and just, uh, you know, essential workers and those that were businesses go out. Um, so I haven't left the house since the lockdown, you know, and, okay. and I continue, I'm going to continue to stay, stay indoors and spend time with my family, but also, I've been keeping up with training every day. And, but like you said, the main thing is that everyone uh, continues to work together to sort of, you know, we can get through this if we work together and, and unite. Uh, as I understand it, like uh, you guys made the decision, you know, collectively in New Zealand, that instead of, as we've been doing, gradually trying to catch up to get right ahead of it, right at the beginning and, and to get into a really serious lockdown. And it seems from what I've been reading to have had quite a bit of effect. Yeah, I feel like I feel like what we did. I feel like the prime minister took uh, good action in the beginning and, and put us on lockdown uh, right from the start. And, and I I believe that in New Zealand is getting better and better, which is a great is a great sign. Definitely. All right, so let, let's get to the the fun stuff. Uh, Kieran uh, Kieran mentioned this right at the top when he introduced you. These these videos uh, that you've produced, uh, you've been a real hit with these with scenes and songs from Love Actually, Grease, Step Brothers. Kieran's favorite, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, and most recently, Back to the Future. How did this come about? Have you always enjoyed doing this kind of thing? Um, how did it come about? When we first started uh, with the lockdown, you know, my good friend, um, 
his name is Kerry Russell, right? and he's he's part of my bubble. From the beginning, he was helping with groceries alongside my sister and her husband. And he is the man behind the whole thing, okay. you know, ideas, the filming, the editing. Um, and he makes me look really good, you know, <laughs> but uh, I, I feel like this is uh, this is who I am. Like, I, I love to have fun. I love to enjoy myself and just um, I have a good time. And I, I haven't really shown it in the boxing world. But I, I guess with this lockdown and with being isolated and then um, actually let loose and be myself and now actually sharing with everyone else how, how I really am. Yeah, that's and it, and it's really coming coming across in these videos the personality that you have that as you said uh, the, uh, those of us in the boxing world didn't necessarily realize that uh, yeah. until until seeing these and and I was certainly blown away by the editing and and so I was I was curious about that it, I, I had a feeling yeah. you had some professional help uh, on that yeah. end but um, just when you first started making these were you planning yeah. to to just make one and and it was just a case of the response was so great that you guys decided to keep going with it. Yeah, I, when we first made it, um, our, our, our goal was to spread positive vibes and, and give people something to, you know, just to enjoy. Um, and we, uh, I think with the reaction that we got, people waking up saying, hey, this is the best, you know, this is the great, um, greatest thing I've seen, you know, from the lockdown, giving us something to smile at. This is excellent. And I think with the reaction that we got, we just sort of planned to do more, you know. And um, we got all this time on our hands. We don't, <laughs> right. we don't have a lot of, a lot of other things to do. They can't travel anywhere. So everything that we've been doing and everything that we did uh, with the videos have been shot here at home. Right. Mm. I, I love the fact that you've been able to get a whole range of folks uh, from around the sports yeah. and boxing world to, to be involved, and including a lot of folks that we here in the States would recognize, guys like Michael Buffer, Eddie Hearn, and Tyson Fury. And I know that Tyson needs no invitation to sing and dance, and so I'm sure it wasn't hard to get him <laughs> to cooperate. But I'm, I'm guessing, you know, that means there is no bad blood after you beat his cousin a while back. Listen, there's no bad blood at all. I, uh, after I, I beat, um, you know, Tyson Fury's cousin, Huey Fury, it was a good fight in Manchester, and after I beat him, you know, Tyson did come out with us uh, the next day, and we celebrated. And we, I think, boxing is one of those sports where, of course, you know, you want to win and you want to support your family and your friends. But you know, at the end of the day, as soon as you know, as soon as the fight's done, we can all be friendly and we can all hang out and and have some fun. But those guys, I mean, Tyson Fury was the first person to send me a video of himself dancing. And singing. <laughs> oh, yeah, so yeah, you're right. He didn't need an invitation. I think he was waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Michael Buffer surprised me. Michael Buffer surprised me with his moves. You know, he was like from the beginning. He was like, "Okay, what what do you need, Joe? Uh, what can I do for you?" And then Eddie Hearn promised me that he'll jump in one. So, and there was, like you said, there's a lot of people who came together to. Uh, oh, it's not. Um, I couldn't have done it with, it without the help of everyone else. Yeah, um, I'm a huge fan of what we do in the shadows and Jojo Rabbit. So I'm really tickled to see how much Taika Waititi apparently loves what you're doing. And um, I'm curious, did you guys already know each other or has he just reached out to you on social media because of this? And does this mean you've got another gig maybe waiting for you down the line? You know, I, listen, uh, off, the, off the boxing, I don't know, you know, this might be something I can do after boxing. Um, Taika Waititi, he's a, he's a legend here in New Zealand. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he's done a, a tremendous job in his career and he's still going strong. Um, we... You know, I, I message him here and there on, on social media. And then I, um, I think with the videos, you know, he's been very impressed. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've invited him and he's always, because he's busy, you know, even with the lockdown, he's still got a lot, a lot of things on. But I invited him to jump in a few videos. And he, uh, you know, he apologized that he was, um, you know, he was caught up with, uh, with a lot of work. 
Um, now, as much as uh, I'd like to be able to say that, that you're the star of these videos, the reality is that your wife is proving to be a big time scene stealer. Uh, she has really, she's really mastered the disapproving, unamused face. Uh, and she's so good at it, in fact, that I feel like she can't just be acting. Is it safe to assume that even when the cameras aren't rolling, you, you get that look a lot? <laughs> no, actually, um, we we uh, we had to sort of guide her and and let her know how to do this uh, the the part that she was playing. But um, okay. usually, like she's chirpy, she, and she even if I'm you know I'm in the gym, I'm here doing this, doing that, fixing car, looking at the golf cart. She's all chilled out. You know, we got three <laughs> beautiful young daughters, and she's very busy. But she doesn't um you know. So I was, I think like you said, her acting is pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I was. You know who takes the cup for this is the children, right? Because they're we're doing all of this, and the children looking at us like, "What? The, what's going on here?" <laughs> right. Yeah. No. She she had me convinced. Cause, I mean, I'm I'm married, so I I know that look. Oh, okay. You know, uh, yeah. our, our wives themselves that they aren't marrying children, but you know they are. We're all children, really. So so when when we behave like children, we get that look. But you're saying that's not you you don't get that too often in in real life. No, not too often. I, I listen, I'm a good boy. <laughs> so did you expect the scale of the response from fans worldwide it feels as if you've become every neutral's favorite boxer like overnight i i didn't um no no, no i didn't expect the, the response but I, I guess with each video that we did it kept getting better and better and then we thought to ourselves, oh if, if this is uh spreading some positive vibes around the world and, and people are enjoying it. And, and you know, some people, like I said before, they wake up, they say, this is so great to wake up to. Yeah. And it sort of encouraged us to, um, you know, to come up with more ideas and just to, to keep thinking of, of ways to, um, to make people happy. So mm. I, I think with that, you know, with the reaction, that's what made us all push us yeah. to do more videos. Yeah. All right. Uh, mo moving on to some other things. Um, Obviously, the virus has forced pretty much everyone to, to hit pause on their life, and boxers are no exception. We talked with one of your fellow heavyweights, Otto Valin, the other week, and he told us some of the things he was doing to stay in shape during lockdown. Uh, you mentioned uh, that, that you've been working out every day. Uh, we've seen you dancing on video, but, uh, but you're saying you're doing more than that. Uh, what exactly are you doing, and, and how close yeah. to being in fighting shape are you? Um. You know, over the years, I haven't really, you know, as, as, uh, I finally sort of realized that it's important to train here at home or when, mm. when I'm at home with my family and friends and, and not just in camp. Mm. So I'm in fighting shape now. Um, and I've been blessed throughout my career to, to be able to buy equipment that I need. I have, you know, I'm actually in the gym at the moment. I have um, treadmills. I've got weights. I've got, you know, ball, I mean, ball slams, kettlebells, dumbbells, a big mirror to do shadow boxing in front of. So I, I have no excuse to keep in shape. And I, and I guess um, the reason why I say this in the second sort of phase of my career is because I'm taking it a lot more seriously now and I'm a lot more motivated and I think I'm a lot more mature than I was before. So gathering all this equipment, uh, that was a relatively recent thing that just turns out to be convenient timing to have all this in the house during the lockdown or, or had you had some of this stuff for a while and just weren't using it as much? I had, I mean, I, I, I sort of got it recently, maybe a year, or a okay. year and a half, two years. And then, I, I mean, and now it's convenient that with the lockdown um, yeah. and being stuck at home, I can um, exercise and work out every day. So it's, it's, mm. a, it's a big blessing for me. Yeah. Mm. So there's been plenty of talk about 
not only when boxing might return, but how. And, and there seems to be a growing consensus that at least initially, we're just going to have to have fights probably like behind closed doors and like TV studios or something like that. And, and I'm curious, when do you feel you might feel comfortable and safe in returning to boxing? And, and how would you feel about fighting in empty arenas if you had to? Um, when would it be safe to return to boxing? I feel like once, you know, once everything settles down and, and uh, I think as long as everyone, once it settles down and everyone's on the same, you know, sort of, sort of same page and same level and uh, if it's, you know, first and foremost, the health and safety of everyone is important. So we just got to, you know, make sure that there's, there are things in place to keep that. Um, and I wouldn't mind fighting in, the, in an empty arena, to be honest. Um, okay. I, I, don't fight, I don't mind fighting anywhere. I guess if, if it's the way, if, if you love the sport, if you love the sport of boxing and you're passionate about it and, you know, and it's a way of you to make a living as well to look after your family, nothing, you know, none of that, I think, matters. I mean, it, will, it makes a difference, though, when you walk in front of a crowd and you train this long camp, you walk, everyone's cheering, woo, go to <laughs> yeah. go the other guy. Um, but I guess, uh, if, like I said, if it's a way that, that it's going to be moving forward, then you just got to accept it. You know, you got to, you got to take these challenges and, um, you know, work through them. I guess the thing with boxers, as opposed to most athletes, is on your way up. Most people, most boxers are used to fighting in front of empty arenas anyway, right? Because they're not necessarily there to see you in your four-round bout. So, exactly. I remember when I was an amateur or as a professional, beginning of my career. You know, there was uh, not too many people there. You know, <laughs> right. you can probably you can probably hear a coin drop on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we, we really want to take advantage of you being with us to ask a couple of questions about your fellow heavyweights. Um, and first of all, you've been in the ring with both Andy Ruiz and Anthony Joshua. So looking back at their fights, how surprised were you with the way that both their first fight and, and then their rematch went? Uh, yeah, the way that I see the first fight was quite, I think it was a surprise because well, not so much. I, we, we said that Andy Ruiz um, had the, um, you know, he had what it takes to beat Joshua. I mean, with the speed, the power, and I've been in a ring with him and I felt his power as well. So, but the way that he finished Joshua off in the first fight for me was not only a surprise to myself and the team, but I think everyone that was there was, it was quite a shock really. Right. Um, and, and so for Joshua to come back and, you know, he changed a lot of things in his camp and, uh, the performance that he put on in the second fight is, is actually, um, a great performance, you know, a good boxing lesson. And, uh, a lot of guys, I think, who lose and then come back always have that doubt and a little bit of worry and, and sort of scared of how the outcome will be. But I, um, it's great to see that he was able to come back and just follow the game plan he had in place. You know, boxing from the outside, move, not get caught. And he, uh, he sort of put himself in the history books, you know, two-time unified champion of the world. That's, that's, that's awesome. Right. How worried should we be uh, to see Andy Ruiz's physique when the quarantine is over? Is is he uh, is he someone that uh, yeah. would be high on your list of guys who might not be doing working quite as hard as you right now? Uh, yeah, he's high on that list. But I, I I hope I mean I hope of that second fight it has because he's a talented fighter and he's a fighter who a lot of people um, you, you know when you see his physique you think okay this guy doesn't know how to fight. That's the first thing I saw. But when I saw him for the first time, I was sparring. I was like, this guy doesn't have it in him, you know. But then I sparred him and he beat me up for the first sparring session. And I think if he takes it seriously and he, and he stays disciplined and eats well and does a bit of training here and there, stays in shape, he can be a dangerous force still. Mm-hmm. And of course, the other big heavyweight event recently uh, was Tyson Fury's huge win over Deontay Wilder. And um, 
I, so I think a lot of people certainly here in the States, we weren't necessarily surprised that Tyson won, but the way that he won, basically well, going yeah. in there and beating up Deontay Wilder, was a real shock to a lot of people. It was certainly a shock to Eric and myself. And I, I wondered if that also caught you by surprise. Uh, what caught me by surprise was the way that he finished him off. Like you said, I, I, mm. I thought that he was going to win before the fight. Uh, but when he said before the fight that he's going to go out there, put him on a back foot, you know, land all the shots and, and take him out there, no one believed him. And I, I sort mm. of, I didn't really think that it was going to play out like that. But the way that he performed, it was a boxing lesson. It was a great, um, you know, he just showed that he could fight going back and he, he can also fight going forward. All right. And final thing then, uh, how about you, Joseph, in, in terms of uh, where your career goes from here and, and, and what's next? You know, as we've discussed uh, one day in, in some form, uh, hopefully not too far off, boxing will return in an ideal yeah. world where everything's back to normal. Who would you like to face next and, and how many fights do you think it might be until you're once again in the world title picture? Yeah, I, I, at the moment, I'm ranked number two at the WBO. Um, uh, so I think it wouldn't take too long to get to the position of fight for you know, the championship of the world again. And I've been very vocal about fighting top fighters. The only problem is it's, it's hard to make fights when, you know, either top fighters don't want to fight you or, you know, fighters asking for too much money or, you know, things just don't work out. So I've been, you know, I'm, 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 I'm happy with the opponents that I've had um, recently, but I, I, I'm, I'm looking for fights that, that actually matter, you know, Fighters who are in the top five, top ten in the world. I think once boxing starts back, it'll take me maybe I know two or three fights before fighting for the world title. Okay. And I'm only giving myself uh, you know three, four years of boxing, and then I'm going to retire and, and you know be a pilot or you know I don't know. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> or, or 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 a dancer or a lip <laughs> or a movie right? star. Yeah, yeah. Or whatever. You... <laughs> no, no, there's, options. there's options. Yes. <laughs> mate look best of luck when your career does resume and i think you're going to find you've got a lot more people pulling for you when you resume than 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 before and thank you so much for putting so much effort into these videos and like you said giving people something to look forward to and smile about it's it's made i think a lot of difference to a lot of people so thank you for that and thank you thank for you. joining us on the show the boxing podcast thanks for having me kieran eric and uh good to see you guys yeah you know something we have been really lucking out in our choice of guests lately yeah. i mean i really enjoyed talking with Derek james last week uh, i hadn't talked with him before i hadn't spoken to joseph parker before that was terrific <laughs> clearly a great guy yep yeah, absolutely. I am rooting so hard for Joseph Parker the next time he gets in the ring. You know, we're not supposed to root as journalists, but uh, I can't see how I'm not at least silently rooting for him. Genuinely good guy. His videos are fantastic. Uh, and uh, if I'm being honest, I really want to move to New Zealand. If uh, if November 2020 <laughs> doesn't go the right way, New Zealand is on the top of the list. Yeah, I lived there for a little while, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, yeah, off, yeah, off, yeah. offline, you'll have to uh, give me yeah. more details. No, I shall devote an entire episode of the podcast. I have nothing else to talk about. All right. That will do it for this edition, though, of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, do be sure to check out Keith Thurman against Sean Porter and Danny Garcia this Friday on Showtime at 10 p.m. Eastern Pacific. And thereafter on Showtime On Demand and other streaming platforms. Uh, the week after that, Showtime will be featuring a pair of Floyd Mayweather outings against Marcus Maidana and Conor McGregor. So join us next week as we look back on those and on the life and career of the man known variously as Pretty Boy and Money May. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.